Hello everyone and welcome to What's Up with Pastor Chuck. Right now we're in a series called Get in the Game and it's a series on how to defend your faith. We've already had Lee Strobel come in as a guest speaker and this past week we had Jay Warner Wallace who wrote Cold Case Christianity. And right now him and Pastor Chuck are going to talk even more about his journey to faith. Listen in. Hey everyone, welcome to What's Up with Pastor Chuck. I'm super excited to have you here on the podcast with us, and we are loving this series called Get in the Game. And the idea of Get in the Game is the idea that we want all the believers, all those who love God, to actually be a part of bringing the gospel message, the good news message to people who desperately need to know God's love and God's way of life for them. But here's what I want you to know. Whenever we get involved in that, we're going to get asked questions. And if you're going to get asked questions, you've got to have answers. And so the minute I decided to do this, one of my friends, Rusty George, who's uh, out in the valley, said, hey, Chuck, if you get anybody to come, you got to get Jay Warner Wallace to come. And I said, oh, my gosh. And he said, it is going to be amazing. Uh, and so Jay is with me right now. Uh, he'll be bringing our, our weekend message. But Jay, tell some everybody who doesn't know about you about you. Uh, I'm just working in Los Angeles County as a, a cold case detective, and I get a chance to speak at churches. Uh, I became a Christian pretty late. I mean, I was 35. Um, there was no Christian in my family to kind of guide me in that process or even answer questions. And the Christians I did know who could answer questions, they really didn't answer them very well. Um, and so I just didn't think it was a reasonable position to hold, mostly because the reasonable people I knew weren't equipped with reasonable answers. Isn't that funny? They, they, they were the kinds of guys who worked investigations. A lot of the people I was talking to were cops, and they were older than me. Um, they were, had more investigative experience than I had at the time. I was working undercover when I uh, became a Christian. My son is now working undercover in the same agency, about the same place I was when I became a Christian. Um, he was raised in the church, and I hope that as he was raised in the church, he heard reasonable answers, because there's nothing more disturbing than knowing reasonable Christians who seem to have the capacity to investigate other kinds of claims, and these detectives did, yet they don't seem to be able to answer the questions that that I would raise as a skeptic. Um, so I thought, well, this, is, this must not be a worldview that makes a lot of sense evidentially if the people I know who know how to handle evidence and know how to investigate evidence don't know why it's true or if it's true. So that really kept me in a place of stasis for a long time, you know, where I just would make fun of Christians rather than taking the claim seriously. Yeah, and you know, I got to say that I feel like a lot of Christians want to know, like they'd love to be able to share. Um, they just haven't either been taught or haven't on their. And by the way, everybody not only needs to be taught, you got to take some responsibility on your own. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is, a, I think, we can sometimes um, in the church we can take a theological position that seems to halt the progress, right? So if we're saying that really God does this work in the heart of, and we know that from Ephesians too, right? That that this is a gift of grace from God, even the first step toward God. And I get that. But I think we can build walls between the, the, the gospel and message. In other words, you would say, um, yes, just preaching from the Word of God, God uses that, right? I mean, nothing—all we need to be able to do is communicate what we know is true as Christians. But what if we were to go and say, okay, well, our mission field is going to be Portugal, and we're, to lead our, and we're going to go there speaking English. And we're not going to speak to any other people who speak English. We're going to speak to people whose native language is Portuguese. Okay. So, so are we going to take the time to, to learn how to communicate in Portuguese? Because, or do we think honestly that God will use our message delivered in English to Portuguese listeners, that he's going to use that alone? No, we would say we will at least we need to speak their language. Well, there's a lot of us out there who we speak an evidential language. In other words, 
It's not so much the Christianese that Christians use. It's that they use concepts that we reject anyway uh, as language, you know, concepts that violate natural laws. You know, I, I, my language was a highly kind of uh, na uh, naturalistic, philosophically natural language that I both spoke and heard through that lens. So if you're going to learn to speak to me, you're going to have to content, you're going to kind of speak my language, although it's, it's both or these are both English. I, I really had a lens that prevented me from, and I built, constructed walls between myself and the gospel that prevented me from hearing the gospel altogether. I needed somebody to help me, uh, and I didn't really know anyone. So luckily, I had a skill set in place as a detective that could help me assess the eyewitness accounts to see if they were re, you know reliable accounts. And that's what I did for probably about six months, uh, not really knowing much uh, if that work had already been done by anybody else. I uh, didn't know the field of apologetics. I wasn't reading apologists. I was just looking at the, the actual New Testament gospels and uh, early history in the first century around this growing movement to see if I could track if there was any corroborative evidence, for example, any other kinds of witnesses that were talking about these issues, just trying to see if these were, if, you know, the, the gospel authors, because not all of them are, are, are witnesses of Jesus. You know, the Luke, he, he knew the, the apostles in the book of Acts, but he's relying on eyewitnesses to write the gospel of Luke. So I was just kind of, you know, working through those accounts to see how they related to one another and if they could survive a test that we offer eyewitnesses in criminal trials to see if they're reliable. You know, it's kind of interesting because in your book, um, <clears throat> I don't know, I think I'm probably like most people, I saw you talk about circumstantial evidence, and I think that it's interesting because of TV or the yes. movies, they act like, oh, circumstantial evidence is bad. Like, yeah. oh, you only yeah. have circumstantial. That's a pejorative, yeah. It's only, or it's all they have, or it's just circumstantial, or they'll say it's entirely circumstantial. And just the tone of your voice yeah. kind of uh, infers that this is not a really good case. But, and yet but, it's good evidence. Well, this is like more than 80% of criminal trials, I would, I would posit, in America are entirely circumstantial. There's only two forms of evidence, direct and indirect. Direct evidence is eyewitnesses. If you don't have an eyewitness who can tell us who did it and what he did, uh, you have to build it some other way, like with DNA or fingerprints or behaviors or actions of the suspect. These are all indirect pieces of evidence, also known as circumstantial. What you see is people saying stupid things like, uh, you don't have any hard evidence. Okay, that's not a category. Hard evidence is not a category. Yeah. There's direct evidence and indirect. Those are the only two categories. Now, in, in America, most direct evidence cases where you got an eyewitness or two who saw you do it, uh, those guys are going to take a deal usually. <laughs> They're not going to trial. <laughs> the ones that go to trial are the ones that they don't have witnesses for. So that's why in criminal justice, in, in, in criminal trials around America, across America, you will find that the vast majority are circumstantial cases. And by the way, we convict those guys and the jury instructions are to tell jurors to treat those forms of evidence with the exact same level of consideration you, you treat uh, direct evidence. Yeah, which I think is honestly, it's if it wasn't for the media, we'd probably all go, oh yeah. But it's just kind of that. It, I don't know. It's fun, fun TV cop shows yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes I think those things can actually hurt. So, so a lot of times making the case for Christianity is just helping uh, the skeptic, and you know that's your uncle, that's your spouse, that's somebody, that's your that's your um, you know twenty something uh, child, <laughs> that's that's somebody in your family who maybe just needs to understand uh, how evidence is assembled to make a case. 
uh, rather than focusing right away on the evidence, because if they don't think that evidence has any merit, because they don't understand the value of this kind of evidence, then then it's going to be harder to make that case. But in the end, um, I would say, too, that God does this work, but we are going to clearly use language to communicate the gospel, and for some of us, that language has to be a language that is from an evidential tradition, just so that we can say, okay, this is some of these barriers that I've built are, are starting to come down because you're you're helping me to take them down uh, so I can hear the gospel. Yeah, and, and uh, you already know this, but you know everyone, most of us know, and if you didn't, uh, Hebrews 11 says, faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Right. And then the conviction of things not seen. Right. So it's interesting that God says, I want mm-hmm. faith. I want faith in me built on real evidence. And you found real evidence. Right. So it's not that we're saying, hey, that this, this faith is blind. If that's the case, we have so many contradictions from Jesus of Nazareth, right? It's it's that, you know, for example, you have that one scene where Thomas comes and and he tells Thomas, you know, blessed are those who have never seen and yet believe. This does not mean, though, that blessed are those who have no reason to believe other than their own uh, inclinations. No. He he then says, it's they're going to believe through your eyewitness account. He has provided direct evidence through an eyewitness, Thomas, and blessed are those who take the direct evidence of your testimony and then believe, because then the very next line, he offers another proof to the disciples. If Clearly, if evidence wasn't important, he wouldn't be doing that. It's, it's, what's, what's blessed about those of us who receive the account from the Gospels, and the Gospels are what? They're direct evidence accounts, right? These are the accounts of the eyewitnesses. So in the end, this is an evidential game from start to finish. You wouldn't know anything about Jesus if not for the direct evidence that Jesus offers to the eyewitnesses, because that's what's in the Gospels. And he also would say continually, hey, you know, um, if you don't believe me, at least believe on the evidence of these miracles I've worked in front of you. This is in John 10, John 14, when, when John the Baptist comes to Jesus and sends his disciples to Jesus, and they want to know, John sent us, and he wants to know, are you the one? I can see Jesus slapping you know, these kids oh, yeah. and saying, hey, are you kidding me? This is my cousin. Like his mother, my mother, he leapt in the womb. He, he baptized me. I mean, it's not like he doesn't have enough good reason, but he says, doesn't do any of that. He doesn't also tell them to go back and tell John to have more faith or to, uh, he doesn't do any of that. He, he, he says, hang on, and he works three miracles in front of the disciples, and he says, go back and tell John what you just saw. That's an evidentialist, okay? That's somebody who's saying, okay, talk, enough talk. Let me demonstrate my power for you. He does this for 40 days in Acts 1 after the resurrection. It says he gave 40 days of convincing proof to the disciples. This is after the resurrection. Yeah. That's a pretty high commitment, right? And then who gets to talk about Jesus in the book of Acts? Just those who were eyewitnesses, according to Acts 1, from the baptism to the resurrection. They needed to replace Judas. Matthias comes in because he can testify as an eyewitness for that entire period of time. Who gets to write books in the New Testament? One of the first criteria was, you had to be an eyewitness. There are lots of first century books that were popular amongst the early church. First Clement, a disciple of Paul, was read by the early church. The Epistle of Barnabas, Shepherd of Hermas, these were early, they were part of the collection of books that were read to the early church. But they don't make it into our canon though, because they weren't written by eyewitnesses. And isn't that comforting to know that the only books in are the books that pass the test? Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Uh, 
One of the things I asked Lee Strobel, so I've been dying to ask you yeah. this, and and that is that you and Lee um, share, uh, I, I think it puts you in a pretty select group, that you actually studied objectively and then came to your faith. Yes. You know, so I feel like you know you looked at the evidence, you looked at those things. My my belief is, and I think I'm right in this: the vast majority of people go the opposite. They start out subjectively encountering God, yes, and then they find out the evidence, and and both are good. Neither is yes. bad. But when did you hit that point where it wasn't just objective? Where all of a sudden you knew the, the reality of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the love of Jesus. Yeah, I think Lee and I have a very similar approach. Um, Lee was trying to solve a problem. Um, Leslie came to faith first, and so and so he really was trying to either prove that she was wrong. Uh, that, see, he saw that as problematic that his wife was a believer. Uh, I didn't have that approach because there was no believers, and Susie and I became believers 18 years into our relationship, and I didn't have that that impetus for me. I didn't think it was even worth really trying to prove wrong because it, you aren't, I'm not going to try to prove you know unicorns wrong. Um, this is something to me that on its face was so absurd that I didn't have any like you know desire to prove it wrong. But as uh, the, the pastor that I first met on this issue, he said that Jesus was a really smart guy. And so I only bought a Bible to see what the smart words of Jesus were. Like, you know, you can glean uh, wisdom even from fictional characters, or you can glean wisdom over the years from ancient sages who might write this text, even if Jesus never lived. Ancient wisdom has its value. So I was willing to buy and learn the ancient wisdom. But as I w- read through the gospel accounts, I realized, man, these really have a texture that, that I think I can examine as eyewitness accounts and I could test. But the problem with any uh, case you make in front of a jury, the cases that I do, are entirely circumstantial and they're cumulative. So I call these, these are death by a thousand paper cut cases. <laughs> so so you uh, any one little thing you might discover is just one paper cut. And if I was to show you, look at this little line here. Look at how he says this. So, but if you see a thousand of those, well, now the weight of that starts to be heavy. And what we're trying to do in front of juries is help them to see visually just how deep the cumulative case is. And for me, I had to draw it out. So as I was drawing this out about six months in, I really thought this is a really good, that you can make a very compelling cumulative case for the reliability of these texts, even though I still had no idea what the gospel was. I was convinced that the gospels were reliable, but I didn't understand why this God would have to come and die on a cross. And as I asked Susie about it, she was no clearer on that issue because, you know, we weren't going to church that whole time. I had gone to church, started my own investigation, then we were spotty for a while. And so I really didn't understand why this would have to be the way it is. And that was a whole other investigation. So I can't tell you when I discovered or or concluded that the Gospels were reliable. I can tell you, though, where I was when I read what the Gospels had to say about me, what the New Testament had to say about me. And that's really the difference between belief that and belief in, right? You can have belief that something is true, but that's what you do by examining what the Gospels say about Jesus. But when you examine what the New Testament says about you, that's when you got to turn a corner because now I realized, wow, it's describing me perfectly. I, I was f- suddenly painfully aware of my own fallen condition. And once you're at that place, then you know you have a need for it. It's hard to, few people buy cars they have no need for, right? And a few people I think are gonna run to a savior they think they have no need for. Oh yeah. So uh, when I got to that point where I realized that there was a need, um, then I had already done the work to establish that there was a savior. So I was able to put those two things to kind of connect those two dots. 
But yeah, I think part of it is people will ask me, what was the tipping point? And I'm not sure how Lee even responded to that. But for me, because it's a cumulative case, and that's what I do in front of... So as a journalist, you can often kind of get to a place. But in your mind, if you think about it, what Lee was doing was assembling his own cumulative case. Yeah. Now, when I'm doing that, I'm always thinking, is this going to be persuasive in front of a jury? Because that's ultimately where we have to go with this. I mean, I can make an arrest, but if I don't persuade a jury, this guy's back on the street. So I'm always thinking about, does it rise to that level for me that I think this would be persuasive to a jury? And once I got there, I was ready to read about what it said about me. Wow, wow. And then did Susie follow in that or did it was- I think she was waiting all all along because she was more or less raised in a kind of a culturally Catholic background. Ah. And her mom is a dear Bible reader. Uh, So she was somebody who not only had a Catholic background, but her mom was a, a Catholic German who- who had her German Bible and, and, and she was a reader of the Bible. So she knew what it said. But I think Susie was still, so I could ask Susie questions and she's like, I don't know. She didn't know how to answer any of those questions about Christian. We didn't own a Bible. I went out and bought a Bible when I was at 35 just to see what Jesus had to say. So we had no background because that part of that tradition is not to necessarily read your Bible or to know, you know, where this passage comes from. You know, sometimes the readings of the liturgical readings in the Catholic Church are, are you know, one from the Gospels, maybe one from the letters of Paul, one from the Old Testament. So it's, I don't think that unless you open that Bible and read it, you know, heel to toe, you even know where those things came from or how they connect, or what the, what the course of Scripture, what the, the long story is, you know, from start to finish. I think it's harder in a tradition that doesn't encourage all, full, full book reading of the New Testament. Yeah, my wife was raised Catholic, same thing. She had never, ever read the Bible. I mean, she knew where one was yes. in her house, yes. and, uh, but they just never did. Yes. And matter of fact, it was kind of cool because um, I was a born-again believer, and our mom and dad were Catholic, and one night they... I said something about the Bible, and they said, well, that's not true. And they happened to have this Catholic Bible there with commentary, and I opened it up, and they were kind of were shocked that we could even do that, but the commentary agreed with what I said. And so they Isn't were struggling funny? with that, you know. Yeah. But um, you're right, they just never, ever read it. Well, I, I actually think that people in these religious traditions can be saved, but they'd have to have a view of Scripture that comes from Scripture, and that might have to, that probably is going to cause them to have to reject some of the teaching of whatever system they happen to be in. And I think that Susie's mom was actually one of those people who held a biblical worldview, and because she would say, uh, you know, that the priest said this today, that's not true, because she knew better. She had read it in Scripture, or she so she was able to kind of, but she was also raised within this religious tradition, and I don't think she had any intention ever of stepping out of that religious tradition, even when we became Christians. But I always felt like she was one of those people who was a, a Bible reader and a Bible understander, even in that system. You know, I have family that are Mormon. Oh, okay. And so can Mormons be saved? Well, they'd have to reject the teaching of the Mormon church. But to be honest, there are a lot of Mormons who don't even understand what the Mormon church proper teaches on certain theological issues. They actually hold closer to a biblical view you know, than they hold to a Mormon view. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, from the historic Mormon views that are offered by the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, and Doctrines and Covenants. So I think that, that that's possible. But again, why would you want to be in a system where you have to reject the tenets of the system in order to hold to something that's true? Wouldn't you just want to be in a place where there aren't these, these uh, logical inconsistencies, right? Or these theological inconsistencies. So I think that at some point, that's going to move you to a place where your your authority is once again scripture alone. 
Yeah, um, one of the, uh, in our town, it's not true of Corona anymore, but it used to be heavily, heavily Mormon populated with wonderful friends and people I cared yep. about. And But one of the uh, girls, I think you're right, she probably was either born again or close to born again, but she didn't know what the Mormon church believed, and then she started That's discovering right. it. Interestingly, one of the things that tipped her is when she found out some of the original people who had supposedly said Mormonism wasn't true recanted. Yeah. And I think it was three. Yeah, three so it was Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, and, and David Whitmer. These yeah. three guys were the three witnesses to the Golden Plates, and sure enough, uh, all three were either chased out of the church or voluntarily. Martin Harris was a member of six Christian denominations after Mormonism. Whoa. So when you see someone is willing to walk away from their claims. Now, the rich traditions related to the martyrdoms of the apostles is is kind of an uh, it's under question because it, granted we don't have great historical documents on all of those. I can be much more certain about how Peter died for example than I can about how Philip died. Right. But what we don't have is and, and and this was they were looking for this in the first centuries of the church. They were looking for anyone, especially the eyewitnesses who would recant. Had that happened, trust me, someone would have been writing because we see this in Pliny the Younger. He's writing to Trajan and saying, "Hey, I got somebody here who's not an eyewitness. He's a second or third generation Christian and he's willing to recant and return to Roman gods." Trust me, had anyone recanted in the first century, that they would have either a body for the tomb, or a recanting uh, eyewitness would have gone a long way to help the Roman Empire squash this. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we have neither of those. So that, to me, was was at least helpful, another paper cut in that large cumulative case. Yeah. Okay, so you go on this journey, you come to know that the Bible's true, and then it becomes real for you and for your wife. So you're still on the Torrance Police Department. Yes. And they yep. knew, almost all knew you as an atheist. Oh, yeah. And now they're seeing this change. Yeah. What happened amongst the, uh, your fellow policemen? Well, I just took a lot of abuse, you know, from people who knew me before. Um, that's okay. I mean, you're, you know, you're going to do that, right? Because you have any change overall view. I mean, could it be a, just a political change of view? If you're vocal about your political view before, then you change your political view. You're going to take these are cops, okay? They're looking for any weakness they can exploit, right? So this is the way we are, right? We're just a bunch of alpha dogs who are just looking to tease each other mercilessly until somebody breaks. Yeah. I call this guppies and sharks. If you got three cops standing together, two are sharks and one's a guppy until that guppy <laughs> figures out a way to make one of the sharks a guppy, and then those two guys will work that. Gu- until he finds a way to become a shark. And we do this in a circle, right? This is pretty common. So yeah, I just gave them another thing to to exploit when they saw this change. Um, but, and I that, that was probably teased. You know, I had guys, I, I didn't promote. Uh, I stayed in the investigations because I wanted to work these cold case homicides and you can't do that as a sergeant or a lieutenant. Also, I was studying for seminary. So I went to Golden Gates Baptist. It's now oh. called say, uh, Gateway uh, Seminary. It's in Ontario. But in those days it was in Brea. And, and um, so I was studying for uh, for a, a theological uh, degree uh, in theology, theological studies, and and I just was I didn't see how I could possibly study for a sergeant's test. Well, those guys ended up you know promoting. So now I had like lieutenants and captains who knew me back when I was, um, and I would take so I, I'd, I'd be they'd be eventually transferred back into my division, and they'd be my supervisor at some point. All these guys who I was partners with back in the day. So yeah, I continued to take their teasing, but I think at some point. 
you know, we're all retired now. And so I noticed in our retirement, we're a little bit kinder to each other. Right? Oh, okay. You know, yeah, so, yeah. so now when I'm communicating with these guys, they're not as... Uh... Also, if you don't have somebody to, to, to perform in front of, right? We would love to, to shark a guy in front of somebody else who could watch us do it. Yeah. But we all would do this, right? So now we're just on a one-on-ones. I think people are like, you know, they're going to come to you with their questions. And that's one, that's a good lesson for all of us to learn is that at some point, the people who you might be afraid of what they're going to think of you are going to come to you in a time of crisis with a question, because if you just don't lose your character, if you just don't uh, betray your values in all the years they're teasing you or kind of maligning you, at some point, they don't know anybody else to ask on these big issues, right? And now suddenly uh, they've got a tragedy in their life or they've got a question as they're getting older and they're willing to, and they're like thinking back, well, who do I even know who I could ask that question to? Well, guess who they're gonna contact on social media? That person who they might've maligned for all those years. So so it's, it's a good encouragement for us, just if you'll just stay um, true. And, yeah. and, and think about this for a second too. You know, it's I and we I work with young people all the time at uh, Summit Worldview Conference in Manitou Springs. Right, there's a ministry there. It's two week immersion program, and I try to tell young people that if you really think that your view as a Christian is going to be popular in a culture like ours, it wasn't popular in the first century. I mean, look at the Beatitudes, right? Jesus said this, right? When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and started teaching them, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the, the those who are mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are gentle, for they shall you know, inherit the, you know, the, the inherit the kingdom of, of God. I mean, think about the things he said. Blessed are those who uh, are, are hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the are the pure in heart. Blessed are the the peacemakers. Blessed are those who who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And then the money line, right? Then he says, Blessed are you, when not if. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, that stinks. No, he didn't say that stinks. He said, <laughs> rejoice and be glad yeah, because your, your reward in heaven is great. And he said, from the same way, the prophets were persecuted who were before you. Now think about that. Why were they persecuted? The prophets were persecuted because they were speaking the words of God into a fallen world of humans. And that's what we're going to do as Christians, either young or old. We're going to at some point have to speak the words of God and, and that's going to cause people to falsely accuse us and insult us because of him, of Jesus. So why would we expect to be popular? And I think part of it is, is that we have this innate desire to be liked, and we're trying to find a way to, to massage the message, to massage the words of, of Jesus, to make them palatable to the people in our world. And if that's if you've done that, if you've successfully, you know, um, altered the words of Jesus so they're palatable in your world, you've probably altered the words of Jesus, right? And so young people, I think, are going to have to be prepared to they're the, they're basically the nail that the hammer is looking for in this culture. And I, I think that sometimes we prepare our kids, and this look, we've seen a lot of of, of teaching in the church that the church is teaching that, that somehow God is here to serve us and that our lives can be made right or better by God's involvement in our lives. Instead of, no, this is a high road that's gonna cost you something. So young people simply just need to know that this is, this is would, well, don't you wanna be in the truth though? Don't, wouldn't you rather be in, in an inconvenient truth than in a convenient lie? That's the message we have to help our young people see. But again, if you expect them to take that position 
you better be able to offer why this is true. Yep. And that's why we're doing a series like this. We're doing a series like this because if we can't offer them why this is true, I talked about this in the book. I had a guy who was involved in an officer-involved shooting, and he stood tall at wearing his bulletproof vest because he knew it could stop bullets. And when he got caught off guard by the suspect who drew down on him, he was only five feet away, he said, I don't know what I was going to do. He just decided to tense up his stomach muscles and let the vest do its work. And the reason why he trusted the vest is because he had seen it stop bullets on the range because we shoot at our vests and we replace these vests every couple of years. So we know these vests are tempered to be able, they're they're, they're made of a a Kevlar material that will stop bullets. But if he didn't know that, if he hadn't seen that, how, how confident do you think he would be in trusting a vest he'd never tested? I think what gave him the confidence to survive was that he knew evidentially this was true. And I think our young people, if we want them to stand tall when shots are fired, they're going to have to know this is not just what my dad and mom think is true. This is not just what the culture I was raised in. This is not just what I believe because it orders my life or it makes things. No, this is actually true in a way that you, you can't run from it. Where else could I go, Peter says? Where else could we go? Well, why does he say it that way? Because he knows, okay, anywhere else we go, I have to be standing in something that we know wouldn't be true. So what choice? If we want to stand in the truth, we're stuck with you, Jesus. That's basically where we are in this culture right now. If we want to be in the truth, we are stuck with Jesus of Nazareth. Good place to be. Yeah. And you know what? First of all, everything you said is so true. Um, as a matter of fact, an article came out today talking about some different um, pretty famous Christians who've walked away yeah, from the faith. Yeah, I know. It's happening like crazy, right? Every other week we have somebody new. Yeah, and that's what this right. person said. But this person's contention, it was, it was a very scholarly article, said... Their belief was they're not walking away because it's true. They're walking away because culture's pressuring them and they can't, yes. can't take the pressure. Yes. And um, and he actually had some interactions with some of the people he's mentioning. Right. Um, but I think part of what I heard you say is, you know, you weren't, it wasn't super popular when you became a Christian in the Torrance Police Department. Right. It wasn't even popular to me. Okay, there no, you go. it wasn't. I mean, I knew this was going to be a, a view that, I mean, I, did, I didn't jump in because, and I'll say this tonight when we talk to, this, to the church, is it, it, I always say this, and, and I've got a friend named Greg Kokel at Stand to Reason who kind of gives me grief for putting it this way, but I'm not a Christian because it works for me, because it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. I mean, if, what you're, if whatever you think that Christianity is going to do for you, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't trying to fix a broken marriage. I wasn't trying to fix a broken life. I had a great life before I became a Christian. Um, and I often say that if you look at Susie and I were to ask Susie, of the 18 years prior to becoming a Christian or the 22 years afterwards, which of these two chunks of time were easier? Susie's going to tell you the 18 we started with were a lot easier. And the only reason why they're easier is because if you can just throw the dart against the wall and draw the bullseye wherever the dart lands, that's easy. I'm always hitting bullseyes that way. Yeah. But now that, that stinking target is there, and I can't hit the bullseye no matter what I do. And that, that's an uncomfortable feeling. And it's a feeling where, and not only that, it's going to be the least popular uh, worldview that the country, because with the battle right now, the wedge issue, is going to be sex. It oh, always, yeah, it always, yeah. it always is, right? But, yeah. but it shouldn't surprise us that that's the issue now. And what you see with a lot of people who are walking away from the church today, I think, are saying, if you listen to their words, that this is driven by a view of sexuality and marriage and all the things that are the battlegrounds on the culture that they no longer could reconcile Christian belief with what the culture is embracing. And so rather, and they knew, but listen, they're at least they're honest, that they could not reconcile the clear teaching of Scripture with the views they wanted to hold within culture. So they knew they had to reject one of the two. 
but at least they're being honest that they recognize that, yeah, these two are irreconcilable. They are irreconcilable. You've got to figure out what, which side you're going to stand on. And that's, by the way, that's a big ask for Gen Z. That's a big ask for high schoolers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I will tell you, when I speak to high schoolers, I know that that audience I'm speaking to, I don't care who they are, if they're in the church, if they're homeschoolers, for the most part, they struggle with this issue and they have embraced what culture teaches on this issue. So I don't treat it like, hey, I'm speaking from the inside out, guys. Here's what we know. No, I'm speaking from the outside in. Let me show you why these two positions are irreconcilable. And I think we have to even do that with young people because they don't think they may be in the church and go into your youth group and they are in, but they don't agree with you on this issue. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they don't like us saying, even if they kind of agree with us, they don't like us saying their friends are wrong. Oh, absolutely. Because you can't say someone's wrong. Yeah, I, mean, that, I know. That's what, what are you supposed thing. to do? Yeah, yeah. right. So. But, you know, um, uh, I um, am intrigued, I believe, well, not I believe, I can show the research today that's coming out neurologically shows we're right. Oh, you know, so there's no evidence we're correct. But the problem is it takes a long time for that to catch on. Well, I think here's what I always say. Um, you know, as a runner, um, I've been running for years with my wife, and I would love to run better. I'd love to run faster. Um, and I often, when I'm running, will think about, well, I just need to stride. I just need to put my mind to it, you know, to push past the pain and run faster. But but I've learned from her, uh, there's a, a guy that she listens to as a coach online. He always talks about how good form is free speed. Good form equals free speed. If you'll just concentrate on form issues, like your arm movements, you think, well, I just need to try harder. No, focus on the form of your arms. Focus on your kick. Are you bending your knees properly? Are you elevating your the heel of your foot so the guy behind you can actually see the bottom of your sole or you're just kind of shuffling. The form, good form equals free speed. Well, the same is true for marriage. The same is true for everything that we, all these issues we encounter. How do we discover what the good form is that'll give us free speed? Yeah. Well, the good form is described as ancient. You know, it's an ancient idea that the ancients uh, were able to come to if for no other reason, right? If you didn't even believe scripture was true, you at least know that at that point, there were not cultural pressures that caused them to change. They saw something that was ancient and consistent. You know, when it comes to marriage, it's pretty simple if you look at it. I hate to say something that's controversial, but, you know, two biological parents in a low-conflict setting, I don't care what metric you measure, produces the best. It's free speed. That form, that good form, two biological parents in a low-conflict setting uh, provides amazing free speed. That and, is really good, yeah. And so for me, it's about figuring out, well, what is, what is good form? On any issue, uh, it's you know, no matter what it is, but if we can figure out what that good form is, we're going to get free speed. That is cool. Well, everybody out there, we love that you listened in. And uh, Jay's message that he delivered at Crossroad is available online, plus a lot of other materials uh, that you can go to to hear more from Jay or read more from Jay. Uh, and so um, if you go to Amazon, put his name in. There's a lot there. Uh, is there a website? Yes, coldcasechristianity.com has all the materials we talk about, links to all the books. But we want to, we believe that, look, we're in a, a thank you economy, right? We're in an economy where if we can't provide you should not have to pay for the truth of these uh, ideas. So everything we offer on the website, and thousands of blogs, uh, videos, a podcast, that's all free. Also, uh, we have a, a children's site for 8 to 12 called oh. casemakersacademy.com. So that will help you raise up your kids to make the case for Christianity, for God's existence, and help them to communicate that to the kids in their life. 
Casemakers. Casemakersacademy.com. Okay, that's really cool. That's really cool. So anyway, we will see you guys uh, hopefully the next weekend uh, where we're going to dig into a, a prophecy update. But the reason we're doing that is because one of the reasons we know the Bible's true among many is the Bible's 100% prophetically accurate. And so we'll be having that this next weekend. The, uh, what I want to warn you about, though, this is a, an adult-only message. Um, we love your children. We have great children's ministry. But at junior high and down, we really think that's not a good message for them to hear. We'd rather hear parents hear it and then talk to your students, your children about it. But anyway, we will see you next weekend. Wow. Well, we really love having Jay Warner Wallace here who challenged Crossroads in their faith. This next sermon that Pastor Chuck is going to give is going to be a prophecy update. And he's going to go through how the Bible is 100% prophetically accurate. So invite your friends and don't miss out. We'll see you this week.